0: This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Menz. This is Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag with your host, Misha
1: Good G'day and welcome to Diplomates. I'm your host, Misha Zelinsky. This week's episode is with Richard Marles, the Member of Parliament for the Federal Seat of Cario. Richard is the Deputy Leader of the Opposition and Labour's Shadow Minister for Defence. I caught up with Richard for a chinwag about how COVID-19 has accelerated history's timeline, the rising tensions in the Indo-Pacific, why the US is still a force for good, How Australia's record defence procurement program can rebuild our manufacturing sector. The choices facing Australia as it seeks to carve out an independent foreign policy. Why sovereign capability is the new black. And how Australia must do much more with its key Pacific partners. And if I could just throw in a quick plug here. For the month of July, I just came to our attention at the show that we were the sixth most popular show uh, in our category of politics in Australia. So, big thank you to everyone who's been supporting the show. Big thanks to everyone who's been rating, reviewing and spreading the word. It's been really, uh, really quite surprising how many political nerds there really are out there. But, look, thanks so much. And uh, without further ado, please enjoy the episode. Richard Miles, welcome to Diplomates. Thanks for joining us.
0: It's uh, great to be here, Misha Looking forward to it.
1: Now... Look, you know, unfortunately, it's very difficult to start uh, any conversation these days without the C word. Um, Now, you know, COVID-19, now this is a foreign policy podcast, you're obviously Labor's uh, defense shadow. Um, To your mind, what do you think is the single biggest, you know, so many changes have come um, from COVID-19, but what do you think is the single single biggest uh, foreign policy challenge that's come from the crisis?
0: It's a really good question. I suppose what I think is ultimately, I think it's an accelerant, if I was to identify anything. I think the the sort of um, trends that we had seen out there probably go faster, but um, part of the world that we're in was one that was much more difficult to predict and and obviously challenging for Australia. I mean, we, we use lines like, this was the most challenging set of strategic circumstances that we had faced since the Second World War, and we were saying that before COVID-19 uh, took hold, um, I, I think this has made that, you know, much more so, kind of multiple multiple times so. And so it, 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 the, the breadth of possibilities for us, um, the, the, the unknowns for us, all of those are much bigger, um, and what it you know, ultimately where you get to is, is not being able to answer all the questions about what COVID-19 means. Um, but you do realise these are really challenging strategic circumstances for us as a nation. And so the need for us to be able to take care of ourselves has probably never been as important or at least as important since the Second World War.
1: I think that's right. And, and certainly you can feel the way that it seems that the compression of history yeah. Yeah. and the pulling forward of things. I mean, it's a really good term. One of the, the, the things you just mentioned there is looking after ourselves. Now, I think a lot of Australians were shocked um, by some of the shortages that we saw um, in terms of PPE, uh, you know, health and safety equipment. You know, sovereign capabilities now become a bit of a, a new theme. Uh, you know, something that I'm very interested in, but you know, given the exposure to just in time supply chains, and and given this sort of, you know, this sense now that we don't necessarily produce enough of the things that we need, you know, in a defence context, what are the must-haves for, for Australia? What are the things that we really need to produce here to your mind? Yeah,
0: well, again, so this is a really good example of where it's, it, it's changed thinking or perhaps, um, you know, really clarified thinking. So, I mean, if you'd said to me um, back this time last year that the making of surgical masks was a... Thing that was essential to Australian security, I would have laughed. Um, and yet um, earlier this year we had members of the Australian Army at a factory in Shepparton, I think, um, helping to churn out masks because we didn't have enough of them. And so if something as kind of simple really as, as a surgical mask can be um, seen or become uh, central to our own security, it then well, what else? And, and it raises a whole lot of questions about that. I mean, from a defence point of view, I think the traditional answer to this question is that... We, in, in an environment where the kind of platforms that you operate off are incredibly complex, and you take the Joint Strike Fighter as, as an example, I mean, this is a, a fighter plane which has been made in and by numerous countries, um, and there are absolutely global supply chains in place there. Um, what... The, the the notion that going back to the Second World War where we, we saw the making of fighter aircraft as part of our sovereign capability that that's kind of not going to be the case now. But but where people have got to in their thinking now is we at least need to be able to maintain and sustain the platforms that we use here in Australia. Um, so it's certainly that. Um, I, I think though you know there does need to be something of a um, an audit of, of all the defence uh, capabilities that we have, inputs that we have, and then say, okay, over and above that traditional setting, we clearly do need to be able to sustain and maintain the equipment that we use. But are there certain things um, in addition to that or as part of that that are absolutely critical? And, and I don't have the full answer to that, but I think a, a much broader assessment of what's in that basket um, we will come to see as being what defines sovereign capability going forward.
1: Now, obviously, there's the what um, of sovereign capability, i.e. the things that you get, you know, what What are the things we need to have here, what are the things we need to store. But in terms also of the where, um, the Henry Jackson Society uh, did a study which showed that um, of the five eyes nations, um, that Australia was, you know, more most exposed um, of all nations to the the Chinese Communist Party, in terms of key production areas, they identified 535 areas, including 30 um, that were critical to future economic innovation. I mean, should we care about the regime that supplies the goods as well as the goods themselves?
0: That's a good question. Um, I mean, it, so answered not specifically in relation to China, but in in the abstract, I mean, of, of course um, we need to be thinking about the places from which we import material and and, and the places that we, um, in effect, uh, do business with. I mean that that and and historically that's been the case and um and we do that we do that right now. So we we would say um, in relation to Iran and North Korea, for example, that there are um, uh, our ability to do business with those countries um, is is significantly curtailed. In again, in that spectrum, where does where does China fit? Well, I mean, we're not in a defence context. Obviously, um, there's not a lot of interaction in terms of defence supply chains, and I can understand that. Um, I think it is important. Um, while China um, is uh, raises a whole lot of challenges in terms of um, Australia. Um, It is a country with whom we've had a relationship for, you know, going back to the Whitman government. Um, I don't put China in the same category as um, countries like Iran or North Korea. I certainly don't put China in the same category as the Soviet Union. Um, I I don't think that's who we're talking about. Um, And I, I think that... Uh, the economic relationship that we have um, with China is uh, appropriate. Now, in saying that, we want to make sure, as a, as a country, that we have um, a diverse set of trading relationships um, uh, around the world. Um, that's that's just prudent. I mean, it's it's in a sense um, the equivalent of having a balanced, you know, financial portfolio. Um, we we need to have. Um, a diverse set of trading relationships, and we are and particularly as a country which is um, reliant on trade. Um, but I do think that we have had an ongoing trading relationship with China. Um, I think that is fair enough, um, and I'm comfortable with that going forward.
1: Now, in terms of you know you, you talked about the you know the speeding up of history, so to speak, and you know the you know, a contested indo-pacific Is something that's going to be an inevitable uh, feature of Australia's foreign policy settings. Now, in terms of defence procurement and new kit, Australia, you know, we've made this sort of commitment. I think it's a bipartisan commitment to two percent of GDP, which you know is around give or take around forty billion a year. I mean, do you think, given the challenges that we're seeing and the speed of which this is going, I mean, is that enough in terms of a broad commitment?
0: Um,
1: I I think it's important
0: that we. Um, determine our spending in relation to defence based on the strategic challenges that we face. Like, that, that's kind of, when you think about it, a matter of logic. Um, you know, if, if a country's strategic circumstances are very predictable and certain, then it can get away without spending a lot. Countries which find themselves in a precarious position to spend more. Um, the, the, the rational act here is to be spending in proportion to what our strategic circumstances dictate. And as I said um, to you earlier, what, what I know is that they've become a whole lot more complicated rather than more simple um, as a result of COVID. But even prior to COVID, they were, they were as complex as they've been for, for a long time. So that, that's got to be the guide in terms of what we're doing. Then the second point is that whilst 2% of GDP is, is um, a good benchmark, um I do think that ultimately, what's important in terms of defence spending is that you have um, an absolute amount. In other words, that it's not a function of GDP because you need certainty in relation to programs over a very long period of time. Which, if, the, if if spending kind of fluctuates as a function of how GDP fluctuates, is going to make it hard to deliver those programs. So you look at submarines, for example. I mean, this is a program which is going to be um, you know, delivered over decades, um, there needs to be a predictable funding stream over that period of time. So, you know, I guess I, I make that point in a context where we're in, the re- in a recession for the first time um, in the better part of 30 years. Um, you know, if you measure defence spending as a proportion of GDP, that has implications there. And, and, you know, I think we need to be mindful of that. Um, and, also, and the final point I make is that it, 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 it's really important that um, our defense force is is dense by which i mean um there is a risk in having a hollowness about your defense force if you don't have the wherewithal to ultimately um use the critical platforms that you have so we are um Purchasing, and I, and I think appropriately so, some pretty significant platforms in, in terms of uh, the naval shipbuilding program, but also uh, Land 400, um, and uh, and we mentioned earlier the Joint Strike Fighter. Um, so across the, the three services, you know, you're seeing a, a significant and appropriate modernisation of equipment. But it's really important that we have um, the. The, the grunt behind that uh, to make sure that we can use all of those, that we've got enough people, for example, that if we have the better part of 100 fighter planes, we can use 100 fighter planes. If you've, if you've got 100 fighter planes, but you've only got the personnel to actually effectively operate a, a small part of that, well, then you don't have 100 fighter planes because you can't use them. So that's what I mean in terms of there being... Uh, we've got to guard against the hollowness in 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 the way in which we have a defense force. and a number of observers, serious observers have, have made that observation about where we're at at the moment. so so we need to make sure that in terms of our spending, we're the opposite of that, which is why I say we need to make have a have an adF which is robust and dense, you know the the opposite of being hollow and um, and and I think that's a very important thought in terms of how we we set our budget. Um, you know ultimately, We face a a really challenging world. Um, We face a challenging world where um, we have um, an assertive China, um, which is doing what great powers do. So I don't really even say this with judgment. I mean, China is seeking to um, shape the world around it, but that does raise challenges for us um and our alliance with the united states is is profoundly important and i think is as important as it has ever been um going forward and and from where i sit the more we have uh, america engaged in east asia the better um but it's also true to say that there has been um well we have an american president who would regard um unpredictability as being a virtue and, and i can understand that um but it 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 makes life um difficult for for allies and so i think with all you put those things together and what that means is we've got to make sure that we're in a position to you know be able to look after ourselves and and that's why defence spending at this moment in time really matters yeah
1: i I want to dig into you know the, the questions about uh u.s china relations and what it means for australian policy but before we get off procurement i mean you know given the m- amount of money we're spending on new kit and it's, you know, the big programs we're talking about here, I mean, can we do more? I mean, in terms of innovation policy, what's the role that the defense procurement program can play in sort of driving Australia up, uh, you know, the innovation chain and how can we make it to, you know, make a more complex Australian economy in terms of its manufacturing innovation capability?
0: Well, defence industry I think plays a really important role there, um, and 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 has done with a number of countries. I mean, if you have a place like Israel, they will say um, that so much of their being an, a country where innovation is very central to their economic character that at the heart of that is um, defence industry and the kind of innovation that you see in defence industry, and partly that's because um, defence. Uh, equipment is about as high-tech equipment as you get. Um, it, it is literally at the very cutting edge of innovation and science. So if you're in the business of making high-end defence capability, then what you are is in the business of making high-end manufactured product. Um, and for a first world nation, that's central to um, the ability to engage in manufacturing Um, successful first world economies that have export manufacturing as part of their economy do so at the highest end of the value chain and defense industry can play a really important role in getting you there having said that i mean it's important that we understand um how you get defense industry it's it's not when you look at countries that do it um they didn't start off doing it because they thought, well, if we do defence industry, that will lead the rest of the economy. They've done it because they've had a strategic reason to be engaged in it. Israel is is a very obvious example given the threats that have surrounded it for most of its existence. But you can take a country like Sweden, which has a really um, strong defence industrial base through uh, a company like Saab, um, and, and at the heart of that is strategic Decisions as well. I mean, Sweden was not a part of NATO. Was um, really right there next to the Soviet Union throughout the Cold War, and so needed to be in a position where it was able to look after itself, and and needed to have a a capacity to um, do defence manufacturing within its borders. Um, if, If if Sweden had been a part of NATO, I'm not sure, for example, that Saab would exist in quite the way that it exists today. So it's strategic circumstances and strategic decisions that countries make which end up leading to successful defence industries and then the benefit that can have for the general economy becomes a, a spin-off. You know, one of my criticisms about where the government is at is that you know thinking the the thinking through the the ecosystem of defence industry hasn't been their strong suit. Um, and so there's never really been a proper strategic rationale which has been put forward by the government, for why we would have a defence industry. I mean, there has been, I I mean, I think most observers would say that this government, having um, seen the car industry leave our shores on its watch, was looking for some answer to industry policy and so has leapt upon defence industry as a a proxy for a general industry policy. Well, okay, uh, if if, if that's what they've done, is there an example anywhere in the world where that's worked? Um, I don't think there is one. strong defence industries come about through a strategic decision about having them in the first place. And I actually think there is a strategic rationale for us having a defence industry, but you just never hear this government seek to articulate it. And I think at the heart of what 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 would be a strategic purpose for us having a defence industry is, is the fact that defence... Um, exports and defence partnerships around industry really go to the core of a nation's interests and trust. So if you think about the situation we're now in with with France, with the building of our submarines, that that has dramatically changed um, and and upgraded our bilateral relationship. France now is critically important as as a bilateral partner to us as a nation because they're involved in the building of our submarines um well actually there's the opportunity for us in terms of the way in which we engage in defence industry to um start partnering with a whole lot of countries within in our region um and if we did that um i think defence industry could play a really important role in helping australia be taken more seriously within the region and within the world and 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 that that's really important for us for a whole range of reasons in terms of our um, shaping our strategic circumstances and, and putting us in a in a much better uh, position. And I think defence industry, we can do it and, and can play a really important role there. But you need to actually make that argument. And it's not just a, you need to make the argument to the Australian people. I think you need to make that argument to the defence establishment. And I frankly think this government haven't even thought about the argument, let alone made it. Um, and so as, an, as, as a result, you're kind of seeing all the hoopla that's surrounded um, their claims around defence industry when Christopher Pine was defence industry minister and then defence minister. I mean, that's just all gone by the wayside now. And there is just a, a barren silence and and there's a real question about whether defence industry is actually being pursued by this government now or not.
1: So turning to, you know, US-China relations, I mean, at the moment it just seems a, a day doesn't go past without some kind of... A, a, an escalation between both sides and certainly in rhetoric in terms of also in diplomatic action. Um, and Australia has likewise found itself in a similar situation. I mean, how should Australia handle this increasingly tense relationship between uh, the Chinese Communist Party and the principal tra- trading relationship on one hand? And then as you said, uh, our absolute critical uh, security alliance, um, that's long longstanding relationship there. I mean, how do we navigate and triangulate this? Or can yeah, we- so-
0: well, look, it's a really good question. I suppose the starting point is I think the world feels a lot safer and more secure and and um, more predictable when China and America are talking with each other. So um, it, it's in our interests that that relationship be um, as best as it can be um, and if it's in our interests for the relationship between America and China to be in the best possible shape, um, then It actually stands to reason that it's in our interest for our own relationship with China to be in the best possible shape. Um, And and so we do need to to think about that. And and that actually requires, you know, the adults in in the room when it comes to this government um, playing a part in determining Australian foreign policy. And right now the adults such as they are I think are pretty silent um, we don't hear a lot from our foreign minister about a pretty fundamental issue in terms of our relationship with China, and we don't um, hear that much from our prime minister, to be honest, either. And the, the, the space tends to get filled by a lot of fringe dwellers on the part of the government ranks, and I don't think that that helps. Um, I, I think the second point is we, we we need to have a kind of underlying philosophy, like what, what are the guiding principles that we, we seek to put in place in terms of our relationship with with China. Um, The guiding principles in terms of our relationship with the United States are are clear. You know, we have, they're our alliance partner. We have shared values and, and, you know, we often use that phrase, that that really means we're both democracies, we both respect the rule of law at home, but importantly, we both seek to create um, a global rules-based order and we've been parties in seeking to do that um, really since the aftermath of the Second World War and we see that global rules-based order um where, where uh issues and contest is is determined by rules rather than power as being central to a stable and prosperous global environment, um which really is the way you would characterize the environment in East Asia for um most of the period since the Second World War, with the obvious kind of exceptions of, you know, the Korean War and the Vietnam War, but um, those aside, um, we have seen um, a high degree of stability in that period, which has allowed East Asia to um, be a part of the world, which has been um, a, an economic uh, powerhouse, and that's been of enormous advantage to Australia. So, but they are, the the, the shared... The shared values, and so what we're about in our relationship with the United States is is clear. But what is it that we seek to? What is the guiding principle behind our relationship with China? How do like what? What are are we trying to do here? Um, And and so I think the first thing is we don't really ever get an answer to that question from this government. Um, I think I think getting a a government minister to try and have a crack at even answering that you'd be you'd be hard pressed. And so often it feels to me like what you get is um, you know you, you get kind of two irreconcilable propositions or or, or two propositions which they don 't seek to reconcile is perhaps the way to put it um yes, China's a great country to deal with um on the other hand, um China creates anxiety as the government would describe it well you know i, I would say that that's not but that's not particularly helpful in terms of getting having a way forward. For me, and it's just my view, but what I think matters is that there is a view but my view. um, I think the starting point is in in our relationship with China actually that we make clear we're in alliance with the United States um, and that 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 is fundamental to our world view and to our national security. But from the place of being in alliance with the United States, we value the relationship with China and we seek to build the best relationship that we can. One which is... um, robust enough that we're able to express our national interests when that differs from um, Chinese action. Uh, One where we uh, can raise questions of human rights, but we do so in a manner which also acknowledges human rights achievements. And there are human rights achievements in China, which which we should acknowledge. I mean, it, it is important to speak on behalf of the Uyghurs, for example. It's also important, if we're being fair, to acknowledge that China is responsible for the single biggest alleviation out of poverty in human history. Um, it, it's impossible. It's important to say both sides of that equation. And we also need to submit ourselves to judgment. I mean, part of the global order is that um and 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 what we seek to have sought to do since the second world war with something like the human rights commission is to place stock in the international community's judgment of individual countries and that means we're not immune from that judgment so in a sense we we come to this with humility but but we will participate in judgment and it's important that we do that um and from that place we 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 do seek to do all of those things but 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 build the relationship and and, and trade is a critical part of that. Now I actually think that can be done, but um, it, it does actually require articulating some kind of underlying Um, set of principles, which I've tried to do, and then it requires doing decent diplomacy. I mean, there, there needs to be some personal relationships between senior figures in the Australian government and senior figures in the Chinese government. I don't actually think there's one. I mean, I literally don't think there is a single relationship that exists between a senior member of this government and a member of the Chinese government. Now, that I, I, I find that astonishing. And I find it astonishing in the context of how significant the relationship is, both in terms of its challenges and its opportunities for our nation. Um, it's certainly, you know, under previous governments, there there were um, personal relationships which um, were able to mediate the difficult moments. But right now, there there is just nothing. Um, and and I think that's a a real issue. So, you know, I think we've got to do our foreign relations as a nation a whole lot better. I think we've got to have a set of guiding principles, and then I think we've got to do our diplomacy well. Um, This isn't rocket science. This is just saying we've got to actually do foreign policy like, you know, uh, a grown-up nation that we should be, Um, and I think that would go a long way to helping us navigate what is a difficult terrain.
1: So, I mean, it goes without saying that um, currently um, we're not in the good books of the Chinese Communist Party. And, you know, you talked a lot about striking the balance that the business community basically sort of goes into a tears every time uh, the relationship gets into any sort of choppy waters saying essentially we should just acquiesce for the benefit of just, you know, letting the, the good times roll on. Yeah, you know, in terms of the decisions that have sort of earned the ire, uh, you know, if you look at foreign interference laws, if you look at decisions relating to Huawei and five G, if you look around calling out of misinformation, if you look at South China Sea in terms of the uh, you know adherence to international law, perhaps even more recently around Hong Kong, though t- we tend to not really talk a great deal, to be honest, about domestic affairs in China as a country. I mean, which of these things would you say that we've got it wrong on? I mean, because yeah, we've sort of an issue is approached. We've taken a decision, and it's a sovereign decision of Australia, which has seemed to, you know, earn the ire um, of the Chinese Communist Party. So it's very difficult to understand how you can navigate it um, in a way that protects sovereignty without, um, you know, stirring them up in that sense.
0: It, well, I guess the answer to that question is is what I've given. You know, I don't, I don't think we're doing our diplomacy very well. I mean, I don't think we've got those relationships in place. Do um, so you
1: think you and, can make those decisions but do them in a way that doesn't, you know, I suppose upset the Chinese in the same way? Or
0: uh, I, I, I think you can build ballast in a relationship um, so that um, there's at least a chance that Um, you can move forward in a context where we exercise our own voice. Now, let me be clear. It's really important that we exercise our own voice. Um, You know, that that is not something that can be compromised. Um, But it needs to be the voice of the nation. And and that's what I said before. Like, we have a significant interest in the South China Sea. Um, Most of our trade goes through the South China Sea. The UN Convention on the Law of the Sea which, if if you like, is the rules of the road for that part of the world, for the high seas, which includes that part of the world, um, is is fundamentally important to us as an island trading nation. Um, And so, you know, we need to be able to exercise our voice in respect of our national interests when it comes to what's going on in the high seas around the world and in asserting the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, specifically in the South China Sea. We must do that. Um, as I said earlier, I, I think as a uh, as a nation which seeks to contribute to a civilised world, it's important that we are exercising our voice in relation to human rights issues such as the Uyghurs, noting that we need to do it um, in a way where we, we submit ourselves to the same judgement and, and where we acknowledge other achievements. But um, it, 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 that architecture only works if countries are willing to speak out um on behalf of people around the world who it sees as being um, the subject of difficulty, and that certainly um, would understate what was going on for the the, the Uyghur population in China. So we need to be able to do those things, and and they're not matters on which you should compromise. Um, Having said that, you know, we've seen um, government members write articles um, which use ham-fisted analogies between um, China and uh, the rise of Nazi Germany. Well, I, I don't. I mean, I don't think that's helpful at all. I don't think. It, I don't remotely think that that's what China is. Um, and and I can understand why China gets upset about it. You know, you have George Christian George Christianson out there using um, you know astonishing language in in the context of COVID nineteen, which which is not helping. And we don't have. Um, a foreign minister or a prime minister who is who is kind of articulating a clear voice on behalf of the nation in respect of um, what we what what we need to be saying in terms of our own national interests, what we should be saying in respect of China, um, while well, these voices are are going on, so they they occupy the space um, in a way that those things are gratuitous and and they are. Um, you know, I, I don't think it is possible to defend those sorts of comments. Um, and we're talking about a relationship which matters deeply, which is the basis upon which a whole lot of people in Australia is employed. And that is a reasonable thing to be thinking about as well. And then, you know, underlying all of that is, is a complete absence of any personal relationships which can help navigate through um, difficult waters. There are going to be difficult waters with China. Um, China does raise challenges. No one's suggesting that it doesn't. And it is really important that we're able to exercise our national voice in respect of those challenges all the more reason then to get our diplomacy right and to be doing it in an excellent way. Now, it is possible um, that we could have the best diplomacy in place with the best of all our personal relationships that exist, but the need to say these things means that uh, China would still act in the same way. But wouldn't it be nice to try that experiment, to actually see, you know, how it would go if we did diplomacy well and I I, I frankly think that um, at a governmental level I should say I don't think that this government's doing it and and let me also just be a little clear in terms of clarifying this I think our professional diplomats do an excellent job you know and, and and I think our, our professional diplomats in, in Beijing do an excellent job and I know um, a number of them um, and, I, and, and they're very highly regarded. But at the end of the day, at a political level, you need critical relationships with, our, with countries that are critical to us. And, um, and right now this, this, this government has been an abject failure really in, in developing those relationships and, um, and I'm not sure why anyone would think that that's a that's good thing.
1: Now, uh, you talked about doing diplomacy well. So turning to the other side of the coin, uh, you you know, the President Trump, uh, you know, the US has become somewhat more of a capricious actor under Trump and has more of a gold alone. It's even been actively hostile, to be honest, to alliances or even multilateral institutions. I mean, what's the implications for a middle power like Australia? And I mean, and and how can we shore up some of these things? Um, You know, for example, would you... Support Australia uh, joining expanded G seven, something like a G ten with Japan. Uh, sorry, with South Korea and other countries joining. Um, do you see a way that Australia can play a balancing role um, against U S capriciousness in that sense? Well, I, 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 I'd be
0: careful about using the term that term in respect of the US. I mean, firstly, I, I, I still um, fundamentally believe that the U S is is a force for um, enormous good within the world um Absolutely. and and i think that the our relationship with the united states um which has been there for a long time is very deep um it, it, it is not just with one person and never has been it's 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 at um a commercial level at a military level at a, at a scientific level um at at a cultural level you know it it is very deep and, and that depth is really important right now um and 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 actually um that relationship has been and in many ways continues to be highly predictable i think the one thing with president trump as i said earlier is that he he would see his own unpredictability as a virtue and 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 i think that um that that makes life challenging for an ally i mean we would obviously prefer to have um, a, a more predictable um, uh, line of sight about what the president's actions are going to be but that's that's not who he is and so um that that's just where it's at but um but I, but I think it is really important that we we understand um that, that we not completely judge America by um, one person. I mean, the president is clearly relevant, highly relevant to the running of America. Um, but America is a big place and it's a very deep relationship and, and it's a relationship which will be in place, um, I'd say, five years from now, irrespective of who wins the presidential election this year. Uh, but in, in in a world post Donald Trump, whenever that world is, um, we will still be in a very strong alliance with the United States and they still maintain all the, the core values that we hold. and And Um, And I think that's really important in terms of how we um, view our relationship with America going forward. I I think it's about putting it all in in context and and understanding that I think what we need to be doing is making sure that we are able to um, take care of ourselves to the extent that we we can, um, uh, that we need to have more of an eye on that. And perhaps the the other thing is that we need to... Um, contribute to the burden of strategic thought within our region. Like we, we need not just to be a dependable, solid ally, but a country which has ideas and views about our region, which actually I think America is hungry to receive from us. And um, I think sometimes we underplay um, what we can contribute in that sense. Um, it's probably all a long winded way of saying I think Australian leader now is a time for Australian leadership, and I think leadership um within our region but leadership within the alliance as well and i I think that's probably the 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 best way of making sure that we keep the alliance um in the best possible shape at this moment in time
1: so in terms of australian leadership then i mean do you think we should seek a seat at the table at some of these major you know uh, know, uh, diplomatic uh, groupings i mean obviously we under rudd uh, mm-hmm. Labor was very central in creating the G20 um, for the GFC response, which is still an important institution. But should we be seeking to deepen and, and, and expand our influence in, in things like an expanded GC, G7 or, or something like that?
0: Oh, I think the more tables we're at, the better, to be honest. Um, and and I think... Um, you know that would obviously be a fantastic opportunity for Australia were that to, eventuate. and the G20 um, is is a really important forum for Australia, and um, Australia helping to shape, for example, the East Asian Summit is 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 really important. Um, Australia's pivotal role back um, during the Hawke and Keating governments in. Uh, the creation of APEC um, is, is is important. Um, so I think you know these are um, important bodies for us to be a part of, and and I think the reasoning goes a bit like this: if, if you know we have a real premium on being taken seriously, that that might seem like an obvious and trite thing to say, but it, it's um, it, it really stems from the fact that we we well along with New Zealand. Um, our two countries have pretty unique sets of strategic circumstances. Yes, we're in an alliance with the United States, but that's a country much bigger than our own. We're the capital on the Atlantic seaboard. Um, And how in the Northern Hemisphere and how they see the world is very different to the way we see it as a country of 25 million people in the Southern Hemisphere and the East Asian time zone. Um, We're not part... Of to use a Labour Party analogy, in a sense, we're not part of a faction. You know, we're not we're not a European country in the European Union. We're not an African country in the African Union. We we are um, we have to navigate our way in large part on our own, um, and that means we we actually need to play bigger rather than smaller when it comes to foreign policy because um, we have to figure this stuff out for ourselves. Like there is no one else who is. We're sharing the, the, the burden of strategic thought about our circumstances. We can do it with New Zealand, but, but um, beyond New Zealand and ourselves, we really need to be figuring this out for ourselves, and, and that means we need to play big. And play big is, is, is not just um, about a kind of misplaced sense of how the extent to which we can shape the world. Um, it, it, it's actually about so that we learn Um, being at these tables helps us to learn and to understand the way the world works, and we need to, we have a premium on that more than most. Um, And if we're going to be able to navigate our own way through, then actually we've got to be out there um, being in these forums, understanding the way the world's going to work so that we can plot our path because there's not really going to be anybody else giving us that. Um, now that is actually very different to being a European nation, which can talk to other European nations, or as I said, an African nation, which can share notes with with um, those other countries in the African Union. We've, we've really got to work this stuff out for ourselves. So in many ways, I often say that we've got a, a bigger premium on on playing big and 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 on being taken seriously than almost any other country in the world, and I, I genuinely think that's right. Um, And so being present in in these places, making sure that we are there at the G20, um, I I think taking our place on the UN Security Council periodically, you know, these are really important things for us to do um, because they help us understand how the world's working and and, and we really need to understand it.
1: Yeah, and and so we've talked a lot about, I suppose, Indo-Pacific, East Asia, Southeast Asia, but, you know, drawing it right down to our backyard, yeah, our real backyard, and I know your son talks a lot about this, but the Pacific, you know, I mean, to put it bluntly, I mean, we've had the step up here from the government, but, I mean, is this somewhere where we've dropped the ball? Because this is actively, yeah, you know, China's now actively contesting the region. It's traditionally an area where it's been Australia's domain in terms of its diplomatic relationships. I mean, do you think we have dropped the ball here and are we doing enough?
0: I think over the journey um, it, it's been as big a, Blind spot in terms of our strategic framework, in terms of our national security, as any. Um, now, I welcome the step up, but the step up needs to be more than rhetoric. It's got to be real, um, and and it's got to be noticed um, by countries in the Pacific, and it's got to be reflected in in a, in a fair income changed attitude from people in Australia. I mean, a point I've I've made a number of times is there's. There's ten countries in the world who would probably um, identify their critical um, number one bilateral relationship as not being with the United States or not being with China, but with us. Um, but go out there and ask anyone to name the ten countries. I mean, like, it, it, and it says something about our kind of psyche. I mean, you would think if you're a practitioner in this space that you, you would rattle those countries off in an instant because. Um, the, the the countries which see us as being completely central to their world necessarily has to define um, a space in which we are um, as important as any, and and um, and yet you know by and large we we tend not to think about this nearly in the way that we nearly enough in the way that we should. Um, it, it's you know there is huge opportunity I think for us to. Um, play better um, and more impactfully within the Pacific in a way which will um, change positively the lives of those who live in the Pacific. Um, but we've really got to, you know, um, commit to that. And and we can't do this on the basis of being worried about um, what others might do in the Pacific in the sense that if, if our only... Reason for engaging with the Pacific is because of what someone else might do. Well, then we're getting it wrong from the start. You know, our call to action in the Pacific, I think, should be really clear. Um, The Millennium Development Goals, which were a relative measure of progress around a range of social indicators between the years 2000 and 2015, had the Pacific performing worst of any region on the planet. Um, Now, I actually think that has something to do with us. that, that's, that is, as you say, the region most proximate to us. It's, it's the part of the world where we can make the most difference. What that says is that at a point in time, um, if we don't change uh, that trajectory, then the Pacific will end up being the least developed part of the globe. Um, and that's patently unacceptable. That will be reflected in maternal mortality rates, in, in, in short life expectancy, in low education, and a range of other um, social indicators. That ought to be the clarion call. You know, we ought to be listening to that and saying, okay, that that that's not acceptable um, in a part of the world where we have an ability to have a big impact. Um, And so, let's really unpack the issues around that and try and effect meaningful change in relation to that. Um, And that's the way we will become the natural partner of choice um, for the countries of the Pacific by demonstrating. To them, that's central to our um, interest is not not any other country, but them. Um, and 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 but it does require us to, you know, I think have a, a significant sea change in the way in which we think about this. Um, and and ultimately, that goes to who we are as a people. You know, like that 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 becomes a statement about um, how, how how we see. The significance of Australia as a polity in the world, um, positively impacting the world, and and um, and, and so I, I you know I feel that Australian leadership, which is so central in terms of helping shape our strategic circumstances on on the big questions that we've been talking about, the relationship with the United States, the challenges that are posed by China, Australian leadership is critical in terms of as best we can shape those strategic circumstances. But that Australian leadership, in my view, begins in the Pacific. Um, that's where we find it. Um, and, and so it really does require us to think very deeply about it. Um, and, I, you know, I do think that there has been more attention in relation to the Pacific over the last couple of years, but, but uh, I don't think nearly enough to um, turn around what I think has been a blind spot for this country for a long time.
1: I mean, you spoke in a very, very positive context there, but I mean, there is a flip side there where there's some systems competition underway. I mean, how concerned are you about things like debt book diplomacy and, you know, China seeking to basically, uh, you know, rope in the Pacific nations into the BRI program and, and you know, the prospect there of, of critical assets falling into control potentially um, of a more assertive China. I mean, is that something we should be worried about? You know, there was talk about Vanuatu potentially being a base, Um, uh, for Chinese military assets. I mean, how worried should we be about that kind of, you know, sort of hard projection of power into our region?
0: I I think it's in Australia's national interest for us to be um, the natural partner of choice for the countries of the Pacific. Uh, I think that's the point here. Um, And I think we get there by focusing on uh, the countries of the Pacific themselves. And I think um, if we just... If if we get worried about what other countries are doing and, and certainly if we start lecturing the Pacific about who they can have relationships with, then we're not on a pathway to success here. Um, you know, success lies in us focusing on the relationship that we have with the Pacific and getting that right and that at its heart is about making sure that we place the, um, interests and the fortunes of the people of the Pacific at the centre of what we seek to be doing in the Pacific. Mm. Um, now, I, I we, we can do all that, and and we, we do we we are in a position where um, we can be the natural partner of choice, and and I'm um, I feel very confident about that. But I also don't think that that's inevitable. I don't think that that happens by us just being here, um, I, and I don't think it, I think it, it it does in large measure defined circumstances at the moment but I don't think it necessarily always will but I think it's within our power um if we get our relationship right with the pacific to make sure that that is the uh, enduring characterization of of our relationship with the pacific and frankly that's that's what what we that's in our national interest but that, that's in the interest of the people of the pacific and it's and it's what we should do um it, it's who we should be as a, a, as a people um but I but I know that if, if, if we are um, if we are really focused on um, the 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 plight of those in the Pacific, and in a sense the outrageousness of, um, in some places, life expectancy for men being in their fifties, um, and that we really seek with. Um, our heart, but but with the best brain that we can bring to this equation as well to change that, then you know that then like th- that's that's all that's going to matter. The rest is actually going to take care of itself. Like it really will. Um, but but that's the place that we've got to get to. And you know, I, I what what frustrates me at times is is that um, you know, I mean, I'm. Let me sort of declare I love the Pacific and I've completely fallen in love with it, but um, it it, it frustrates me that not enough of us um, understand it and and see its importance but also see um, the cultural wonder that it represents and and a kind of... um, have opened their hearts to, to how incredible a part of the world it is and, and how lucky we are to really live as part of it and to have the opportunity that we have to contribute to it. And that's where we've got to go. It's, it's, there's a kind of an emotional connection, which um, I, I think that we've got to get to. I mean, I, I think that, it, you know, it's interesting comparing us with with New Zealand in, in respect of this. Um, New Zealand do... Uh, I think identify in in a in a deeper way with the Pacific for a whole lot of reasons that that make sense. I mean, um, the I mean, Auckland is a is, is a much more Pacific city than any city which is, exists in Australia. Um, New Zealand is part of Polynesia, um, so it, it's it, it, you can see why it happens. Um, and and maybe there's a tall order to ask Australia to sort of have that that same cultural connection um but actually we have a lot more presence in the pacific than new zealand much much more um and if we could back it up with just a bit of that kind of connection um then i think that we working alongside new zealand would would go a long way to securing the kind of interest that we need to um in terms of the relationships that we should be building with the countries of the pacific
1: yeah it's a huge responsibility and it's really, It's great to hear um you talk about it so passionately switching gears slightly um you know i think the profound challenge and we could do a whole podcast on this so you know mate i you'll probably have to do this at a, at a reasonably brief level but i mean open and closed right. systems yeah you know, open and closed systems you now political warfare i mean this seems to be the i think the preeminent challenge of the 21st century and one of the things that worries me is some of you know, and I think you know, obviously share my view of the world in this sense is that we're both passionate about democracies, passionate about open societies, but autocracies seem to be gaming our openness in a way that is very difficult for us to resist. And at the same time, closing themselves off to, I suppose, the virtues of openness that we would say, you know, in terms mm. of interacting with open societies. I mean, how can open societies prevail and how can they beat closed systems? And do you think they can?
0: I, I, um, well, I certainly hope that um, that human progress and prosperity um, lies with um, human rights and with democratic thoughts and democratic freedoms because um, that's what I passionately believe in. Um, I, I think over the long run, um, innovative thought both in terms of um, the evolution of society in a social sense but also um, in a technological sense um, in terms of science have performed better in in open um, societies where there is freedom of expression and and freedom of debate. Um, And and I think that that is still going to be the case going forward. Um, You know, I do think that there are... Um, real challenges in relation to the the evolution of, of technology, um, which you know present themselves, and I understand the point that you're making that in in, in closed systems there might be um, uh, ways in which closed systems can deal with um, the development of technology around um, IT. But ultimately, I think this has got a fair way around, and, and I do, I do passionately believe um, in um, you know the power of um, you know government of the people, by the people, for the people. I mean, I, I, I think um, giving uh, putting the people central to um, the equation is is still the best recipe going forward. And so, um, you know, I'd. I'd I don't take democracy for granted. I think it is something that needs to be continually worked at, but I'm as strong a believer in it, as strong, I am as strong a believer in it at this point in my life and at this point in time as I, as I have ever been. And I think that is still fundamentally critical to um, the future of um, a, 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 a more civilized world.
1: Well, a very uplifting place in the more formal part of the proceedings. Now, I know that you've been dying to get to this part and the audience can't wait to hear your answers about you know the, my trademark clunky segue to my incredibly hokey and lame part of the show, the fun part of the show. Now, you're a very worldly man, Richard. Um, who are the three people, uh, foreign guests, that would come alive or dead that would be brought along to a barbecue with you up there in Geelong? Um, you know, it might be difficult to get them there, even if they are alive, with the COVID restrictions, mate. But uh, you know, it's fantasy football, so we can do our best. But uh, who are they and why, mate?
0: Okay, well, it, it, it's um, so I'm answering this in in a political way. Um, there, there, well, you there, are a
1: politician, mate. I can't you know, exa-
0: I mean, you know, there'd be a there'd be a sporting version of this. Um, you know, where I, I would love to meet Tiger Woods, and I'd probably <laughs> like to meet Bobby Jones. Um, uh, and um, you know you could kind of throw in the ablets and, and Shane Warn. Um, I, I also we're kind we're of figured, time, that- mate.
1: We're gonna, if <laughs> Warney's is coming, I'm definitely coming, all right? So, yeah. <laughs> I? I also think though that it's.
0: Um, uh, I mean, they're all. Um, I'm sure great people. I I I love their. Uh, efforts on the sporting field, and I kind of have a, a, a bit of a rule that I, I don't know whether you, you want to get to know your sporting heroes. I, I just enjoy what they do on the on the,
1: on the sporting field. you always got to be careful about your heroes. They do say
0: <laughs> so. So let me answer the question in a political way, though. Sure. And I would, would... So none of them are alive. Um, uh, Abraham Lincoln, for sure, is definitely my great political hero. Um, but I would love to have him at a barbecue because... Um, by all accounts, he was he was a he was a raconteur. He was funny. Um, he was self deprecating. Um, he had a kind of um, a certain melancholy, but a but a a warmth and a warm kind of charm about him, which which I would love to um, experience firsthand. Um, and you know, I, I, he he is the great man, um, Churchill. Would be would there be there as well? I mean Churchill would whatever else he would be fun. Um, yeah. There would certainly be no shortage of um, uh, drinks uh, if if he was there, uh, and you get the sense. Um, that a guy who you know routinely was in the bath, as I understand it, with uh, sipping alcohol throughout the entirety of the Second World War. I mean, not that he was in the bath throughout the entirety, but I think yeah. he was there on many days. Um, I mean, that is that is pretty amazing. He he is going to be fun um, at a Absolutely. at a dinner party. And and again, I mean, he, like it is the defining moment of modern history and he is the central character to it and and um you know when you i mean if anyone won the second world war i mean obviously what not one person but if they but the person who had the most influence on it was winston churchill and um so it would be uh, great to have him there and and the third goes back a bit deeper in history um i think it would be fascinating to speak to queen elizabeth the first um she really i think is the is probably the great English monarch. Um, and when you think about where, how does the British Empire comes to its preeminence, I think the seeds of it are there in her reign. And she comes to power, um, you know, her father is Henry VIII. Um, there, there is a kind of tussle for power, which she was probably unlikely to win and yet does, she I doubt has I doubt there's been anyone in history who's been more underestimated in terms of their ability to um, do the job I mean people were desperate for her to find a partner because they felt that there needed to be a male presence around and she resolutely refused to do that and then becomes the greatest of them all um, that's somebody I reckon would be fascinating to me I, I, I like her kind of desire to plot her own path and do what she was going to do and not conform to what just about every voice around her wanted to do um, that would be a force of nature I'd like to meet
1: Right, so three good ones there mate Yeah, kicking the ass of the slave owners uh, kicking the ass of the Nazis and kicking the ass of the Irish and the Scots mate so it's a a good list well look, leave it there, Richard Miles thank you so much for your time, it's been a fantastic chat and uh, we'll catch up soon Thanks Misha G'day, Diplomates fans. Thanks so much for tuning in this week. Big thank you to Richard for coming on the show. He's a very busy man, so I really do appreciate him being so generous with his time. If you've got your phone in your hand right now, please jump on, rate and review. It really does help. Let's get ourselves from 6th in Australia to 5th in Australia for the month of August. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.
0: You were just listening to Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag. For more episodes, visit www.diplomates.show or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through any of your favorite podcast channels. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, producer Jim Mintz.